Hey everybody, Clint Fossley here and welcome to the 23rd edition of the Clint Fossley podcast series entitled Suicide Prevention with Hudson Harris from Pandon. I met Hudson a couple of years ago through our tech backgrounds where we were both at an annual conference or a global conference speaking and Hudson was already sort of involved in the suicide prevention space very much from a data perspective. For me personally, it's not a topic I know a lot about and, and was very keen but also very hesitant to to have the chat with Hudson because obviously it's a very heavy, heavy topic and something that, that you know, shouldn't be taken lightly. What turned out was actually just a, a great conversation. And I hope you enjoy the podcast between two good friends and how we, we both, you know, I think pretty much shared openly our journey and our story about all the healing and all the evolution we've done. You know, Hudson obviously knows the suicide world well and understands it well. And I think, you know, the key thing I took away from it, you know, anyone can be susceptible to suicide. And I think the the dangerous thing is no one can actually predict it as much as, as much as the science just tries to do the best they can and people are using data and analytics, but it's just a really, really hard thing to put your finger off when someone is at that point of view. If you are in that space or if you are struggling, reach out to us, please, whether it's to me or to Hudson or to anyone you know, just just please ask for help. It's okay. And as as I guess as a guy's guy or someone who who's, you know, who's was told that cowboys don't cry and that you don't go speak to a therapist. I'm telling you from, from me to you, go, you know, reach out to anyone, reach out to us. And, and if you are struggling, seek professional help. If you are struggling on a, on a, you know, on an emotional level and want to get over a divorce relationship, then we are here to help at clintforsley.com forward slash help me. The essential aid and all our other courses are up there to help, help you sort of get your life back and, and, and live the life that you've always deserved to live. I really want to thank Hudson so much for his time. It was a, an amazing chat and both of us, have sort of decompressed a lot since having the chat and, and, and also sort you know, decided to check in on each other every two weeks just to keep each other accountable so we can keep serving those people out there and, and doing the work that we want to do. So thanks once again. Enjoy it. Strap in. Enjoy. And we'll see you on the other side. Cheers. Hey everybody and welcome back to the 23rd edition of the Clint Forsley podcast and today it's a heavy topic but a topic that is most necessarily needed to speak about all about suicide prevention with a friend of mine Hudson Harris from Pandan. Hudson welcome to the podcast. Hello everybody nice to see you today. So lucky number for you if you're a sports fan number 23 um, for, the, for the US people for those who have no idea what I'm talking about uh, Michael Jordan 23 LeBron 23 Yep. Uh, Jamie, a little shout out to you. I know you are, you've got a man crush on LeBron. It's more uh, than a man crush. Who has? It's more than a man crush. <laughs> True story. Uh, Shane Warne, 23. Uh, just a, just a, I remember for myself, I was actually playing rugby in the States in oh, maybe mid-90s or wherever it was. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was that season when Jordan did the last, oh, the last dance, his last um uh, that last sort of run that they had in the championship where you had that fever and all that kind of stuff and still went back to South Africa. And oh, this is just post-apartheid, right? No one knew what basketball was or, uh, you know, people of color were. And I wore my Michael Jordan basketball vest with pride, man. And yep. the bizarre thing, which is, which is weird in terms of trends, is the NBA official jerseys were made by Champion in those days. That was the oh. brand. 
Yeah. And and all of a sudden now Champion has become very trendy in Australia. Oh, so really? My, yeah. So my kids will pay like $100 for like a jumper and it's Champion. I'm like, no, but I'm sure you got Champion at Kmart or, you know, Walmart or... If you want me to send you stuff, I can snowboat <laughs> it to you for far less than $100 a jumper. Like, Jamie has already done that. Uh, he's like, okay. do they really want champion? Anyway, um, so Lucky23, Hudson, welcome to the podcast. Um, quick intro. I, I met Hudson actually at a tech conference, um, part of my nerd life, and we met in Orlando, I think it was. Yep. Uh, and then I've met subsequently year after year. But today we're talking all about suicide prevention and when I met uh, Hudson, he was working for a business called Harris Logic, and I'll let him explain that. Um, but it's all around using data and analytics, which is my nerd life, my nerd background in terms of trying to analyze trends of suicide. So, Hudson, welcome to the podcast. That's a ramble intro all about Michael Jordan and the number 23. Um, how's your day been? It's been great uh, here in sunny San Diego. So the temperature is 73 degrees and sunny. The low will be 62, just like it is 300. And, so, uh, and in centigrade, and we have no idea. It's 14 furlongs off a yard. Uh, it, it's roughly that. Um, <laughs> let's see, 72 degrees Fahrenheit. It is 22 degrees Celsius. Ah, uh, Okay. Yeah, so the, the range is uh, 22 to 16. It's a very and temperate range, and the uh, the surf break is nice nice and stout today, so it's a beautiful, beautiful day. So that's the typical winter day here. The, the air is 22 and the water is 21. Yeah, our, our water is more Pacific too, so yeah. it's, it, the water doesn't usually get too terribly warm. And how is it um, in the States at the moment? Now I'm at a conscious decision, yeah, uh, big eyes for those uh, – listening I, I made a conscious decision to turn the tv off a couple of months ago because i was going slightly getting freaked out about everything from what i've picked yeah. up it's 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 an interesting time to be over there right yeah it's um so for those of, i mean i guess probably none of your viewers know me maybe a few or listeners do maybe a few do i uh i have the uh the dubious honor of, of having sars uh 2003 sars cove one um i was living in singapore at the time I and so i have uh uh, a, a bit of a different perspective. And I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's not real good here, Clint. It's, um, there's the, where most countries have managed to do the bell curve or the flatten the curve and then drop, drop off. Uh, the United States is committed to a plateau. So we peaked, came down just a little bit, and then now we're flattening back out. And um, wearing a mask has become political, which is just mind boggling. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty rough here right now, just, just on that side, not to mention the mental health toll of uh, everything that's going on. So it's been so rough. What are the numbers from a, from a mental health perspective? You know, are there, is the data coming out? I mean, I know unemployment there's through the roof as it was here. They, I mean, we've got a tiny population in relation, but I think on the first weekend when they shut, shut the country down, literally 800,000 of 23, 23 million people lost their jobs. Uh, what are the... What are, the, what are the statistics, if there are any in play at the moment, um, around you know the increase in mental health needs? Yeah, it's. Um, I think as of shit, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, the job loss was somewhere around like twenty five million. Wow. Um, the highest single day record for jobless claims in the United States was like nine hundred thousand uh, a day before. And we are now somewhere around, I mean, we've been a, well above a million a week um, for weeks. Um, and it's, 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 
it's pretty, 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 pretty intense. And the problem is it's really hitting the service industry hardest. Yeah. Um, and then what you're starting to see is all the second wave of people, businesses that managed to hold on and now they aren't. So I think that's getting worse on the mental health side. It's, it's, it's bad. I'll just, it's just, frankly, it's bad at a time when we needed each other most, we all had to turn away uh, and lock in suicides um, in some areas are triple normal rates. Domestic violence is through the roof. Um, depression, uh, anxiety, all that stuff, because people, people aren't able to get the services they need. Like the work I do on the government side, I get to see the, the root data behind service level, service capacity. And it's like, be bopping along and then march and it's just boom. And so you're seeing like yeah. a third the number of people getting services. Uh, substance abuse treatment is just single digit percentages compared to where it was. So it's, wow. it's pretty, pretty rough right now on that side. Yeah, it's it's and and to me the um, it's this is not just I mean even in Australia where we've done amazingly well you know the the ripple effect from the economy and and to me the the shit's coming um, you know because uh, it's there, there's as as with everything in life and every every decision there's a tail and there's a consequence and and that's still for me is you know twenty twenty one twenty two but anyway and let's you guys have really had it bad I mean you had the bushfires. You've had, I mean, it's like, you guys had it, you guys have had it rough. And then all of this on top of that, like, it's like, whosoever bingo card this is needs to call bingo and let's be done because it, it seems like you guys really took, really took it, really took it hard. Well, I mean, the, the, the laugh, I mean, and a laugh in the fun, in a, in a bizarre way about the bushfires is, is we actually um, would, were doing for, for the nerd job, geospatial um, demos um, just yeah. for a presentation I was doing. And we, we dug up this, uh, this is, you know, Galageo, a Webby product that you might know. And yeah. we, we dug up the demo system and there we had all this air quality data because the bushfires were a big thing. So what we did yeah. is we had all this different air quality data and then push play on a map and then you saw the fires come in. And, yeah. and, and you look at that and you go, wow, there were like decades and decades of devastation and that's just forgotten. Yeah. It's like yeah. it never happened. It's, it's pretty surreal. Yeah, it really is. We're, if you think about, I was talking with, um, with the psychologist about this, that like, if you go back to roughly the Vietnam war generation, there was roughly a major catastrophe once, maybe twice a generation. And then when you get to the end of the seventies, um, you have generations like my generation, I'm 81. You've got, uh, two recessions bigger than the great depression. You've got, uh, all the all the all the Iraqi invasions, yeah. Afghanistan, 9-11, um, COVID, like all of these, and then not to mention the current political administration, just these things that are just like at any other time in human history would be a catastrophe that we would deal with forever. And we're just we're we're reaching, you know, a gestalt of catastrophe. Like it's just it's crazy. Do you think that's uh, I mean, because I, I, I'm having a, as I think all of us have done with this time at home, this pondering, you know, what's a, who am I and what's the meaning of life thing, but it's just a, it's almost a way of reflection of who we are as society. Like everything we do is ramped up, right? You know, everything's on devices, yeah. everything's quicker, everything's more, everything's want. So the, more connected. Yeah. But the consequence of, of being so, you know, having our foot on the planet on foot on the pedal for the planet, for our souls, for everyone is, well, these other things are going to happen at a quicker pace and scale bigger. Um, yeah. Whereas in the past, it was a simpler time, right? You, you had an argument maybe with the village next door, um, and that, that, was, that was it. Whereas now yeah. it's, just, it's just a product of, of the world that we've created. 
Yeah, and now during COVID, the the rate of uh, Amazon deforestation has hit all time highs, and seeing all kinds of stuff that's that's really starting to um, cycle in on itself and start to yep. build. It's 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 no bueno. So you say deforestation's gone up? Yeah, that was actually one of the really. It was. Um, that's bizarre. Well, no one's out there trying to stop them because everybody's like. Uh, home more or less and what um and then what they're saying is is that there's so not only is it deforestation but then it's also um they have a big drought and then it's something like two to three times the rate of deforestation during covid and then now you've got covid is is now made it into the the local populations there and it's just sweeping through them and so you're losing entire generations of people within indigenous tribes um yeah so 14 it has been. It was rising slowly, and then COVID hit, and it's just been an explosion of wow. deforestation. Yeah. Now, see, these are all the little things you don't think about, right? Um, yeah. It's just you know, all like the micro industries that, as you said, you know, I was trying to sell a car just before COVID. Great time, great timing. Yeah. And then, and the guy who bought it actually sent food to the service industry, and he put the deposit on, and he came up to me and he said, I, you know, my business is literally shut down. I can't, I can't yeah. buy the car. So it's all these little. You hear these things as you go along. Um, anyway, so now what we always normally do in the podcast is go back and we've started talking, but let's go back, uh, right. where, where exactly. you were born, what's your story. So let's, let's pull back to the early years. Yeah. Um, I have a very, uh, long and weird story. So I'll give you the, the 10,000 foot view. I was born in Columbia, Missouri, 1981. I'm a Scorpio. I like long walks on the beach. Um, and <laughs> I, I perceived Tinder profile. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like cooking. Um, uh, I, I had a, I had a very non-traditional childhood. I moved around my parents divorced when I was six months old and I started flying alone from wherever my mom lived, wherever my dad lived, uh, every other weekend, uh, starting when I was four and a half. That's so, crazy. uh, Kansas city to St. Louis, Amarillo, Texas to St. Louis, Colorado to St. Louis, Maine to St. Louis. So I was a gold member on American airlines in the fourth grade. And, uh, it gave me a really interesting perspective of, uh, I mean, on everything, but really like how I think about people, how I work with people. And so I've lived in, um, I've lived all over the United States, every, t- every single time zone, um, at least, well, actually lived every time zone twice. Um, and also outside of the country, I lived in Singapore and then also in China. And so I've lived all over the, all over the world. I went to George Washington university for undergrad, uh, where is that? Uh, Washington DC. Okay. So speaking of, you know, the catastrophes, I was four blocks from the white house on nine 11, um, lost friends. Uh, you know, it was, it was a rough day. I mean, that's understating it. Then um, studied abroad, and then I got an MBA and an MA in international business. And then because I'm a glutton for punishment, I went to law school. And uh, went to law school, got my California bar. I joined the California bar in 2010. And I was uh, worked in law. Then I worked in a general counsel at a behavioral health firm. Um, and then got into privacy. And uh, privacy has ended up being um, the pivot point into the work that I do now. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the high-level overview. But it's a very – I talked to the recruiter like a year ago, a friend of mine. I said, I've never met somebody that has such a non-traditional career arc. And I go, that was the best left-handed compliment that I've heard all day. <laughs> so, so I want to go back to your, your flying. So you lived predominantly with your mom. 
I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. And then went to your dad every second weekend, but yep. he used to fly there. Yep. That's crazy, man. Yeah. Like, I mean, I still remember like being in the fifth grade, sixth grade and they'd miss a connection and I'd be stuck in an air, I'd be stuck in a hotel overnight by myself at like 10. Yeah. Like I look, I have two boys now and I'm like, what in fresh hell was anybody thinking that that was an okay decision to make? Like, yeah, because I mean, I mean, uh, there there are two sides to that coin, right? It's awesome that you kept your relationship with your dad and he invested the money to see you, right? That's that's good because I, in in the space I deal with the divorce, a lot of a lot of dads unfortunately just walk away and start a new yeah. life, which is which is the other one side of the coin. But as you said, my my nine year old sleeping upstairs, and I'm thinking. You know, in a modern day where people fly a lot now, so it's a bit more acceptable. But going back to the to the eighties, not everyone just hopped on a plane. It was a different time. Yeah, I was four and a half first time I flew alone. <laughs> so you knew all the air students or part. Oh yeah, time. especially because like you know you'd fly the same route every other yeah. weekend. Like I mean, I get on the plane and the stewardess would be like, "Hey, Hudson, how are you doing?" I'd be like, "Just fine, Janine. Thank you." Like I mean. <laughs> That's classic. So where did you spend most of your most of your schooling years? Which state were you in? Or just all over? Uh, I was let's see, uh Denver for two years, St. uh Missouri for three years, Kansas for two years, Texas, I guess would be the biggest one for four years, yeah. and then Maine for two years. So so once again, I guess the, the, the blessing and the curse, you obviously didn't have the stability, but you obviously had that ability to meet people because of Yeah, I can talk I can talk to myself in a paper bag um, yeah. and come out, you know, with a good conversation. So it definitely gave me the, uh, the, the trauma acquired response of being able to talk <laughs> to anybody. Um, it was a survival, I mean, like at a certain point it was a survival skill. Yeah. Like that was, it was either make friends or, you know, be miserable and, you know, get stuck in airports by yourself. And have you, have you done any work? Because I mean, for me, a lot of, a lot of my baggage and my shit and my hangups were mommy daddy issues, right? Mm-hmm. As, as with all of us. And I've, you know, I've said this a couple of times for me, I wish I just knew this earlier because you realize the power you have in your kids yeah. you know, in, in a good and a bad way. Um, yeah. Have you, have you had time to unpick all of that stuff or have you gone down that rabbit hole? Oh yeah. At length. I, um, I'm a firm <laughs> believer that like, uh, mental health and therapy is like going to the gym. Yeah. Um, everybody should do it. And like, I can't tell you the number of arguments I've gotten in with people online where like, I don't need therapy. I'm like the fact that you're saying you don't need therapy means you need therapy. Like yeah. even if it's a once a month check-in, um, I've been in uh, weekly therapy for almost a year um, and was doing teletherapy intermittently before that. And I've had, you know, a variety of therapies over my life. The one I have right now is just, she is the most incredible therapist I've ever seen. Like, mm. you know, the really good therapists were, are able to help you identify your bullshit, but then call you on when you're up on your bullshit later. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I really went into uh, fatherhood really wanting to avoid some of the things that had happened to me. And, um, you know, we do the best that we can, but I really work with my kids. Like I talk to them about, you know, mental health and you know my sons are five and eight like you know my my youngest son has special needs uh sensory processing disorder anxiety adhd and i take my meds with him and he's at four he since, since he was four years old he uh, self-manages his medications he gets up yeah. in the morning he goes to the bathroom he takes his meds without being asked you know so he 
I try to normalize that. And then I also take my kids with me to therapy. I don't take them in the room because they're the subject of a lot of it. Uh, but <laughs> I bring them there yeah. as like, this is something that's normal. Like dad's going to therapy and that helps them feel normal when they see, you know, the, you know, child therapist or whatever. So I worked, I've worked a lot on my own issues and that I'm also trying to head off at the pass. Um, you know, what my therapist calls the, uh, the generational legacies. Um, how are we healing what's happened to us in the past so that we don't pass it on again in the future? Because at the end of the day, if we're not aware of our patterns and our cycles, we're going to one, repeat them. And two, at worst, pass them on to our kids to keep the cycle going. Well, exactly. Right. And, and, and the whole, the whole concept of that is starts with, I mean, awareness is always the first point when you realize shit, there's a problem here. Um, and, and those have been my lessons and my learnings, like the hard ones, right? Where you actually have to look at yourself and you go, Oh shit! I hated that thing about my dad, but I'm actually the exact same person. It's like, and 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 I guess for me is just not blaming yourself and letting yourself go in that because you're just a product of your environment, right? And if you, you have to forgive yourself, of course you do. Um, yeah. And that and that just just on the on the mental health thing from a, from a stigma perspective because this is a huge one for me as specifically as a you know a South African rugby playing male is is you just you just don't go right. I mean, I I remember the first time. Uh, you know, it was, was actually I just caught my, my ex-wife for the first infidelity. And I, it was the first time in my life I don't know what to do. And I remember phoning my mom, distinctly remember pulling over on the highway, breaking down in tears, and I didn't know what to do. Phoned my mom and I said, well, what do I do? And I think I need to speak to a therapist. Yeah. And, and her response to me is that you, you don't go speak to a shrink. Only people who are weak go and you are not weak. Like that was a condition when I was growing up with. And yeah. And fortunately, I went, right? I, I kind of, because I didn't know what else to fucking do. I, I, I ended up going and, and then started my career. Thank you, man. That, but that's sort of my journey of finding good and bad therapists as well, right? Because also got to a stage where I went to therapists that I just went because I was doing the right thing. I wasn't actually doing the work. You were checking the box, yeah. Exactly right, yeah. Um, and then a lot of, a lot of I'm going to get to the question now, a lot of rambling here, but a, lo- a lot of my mates who I know need to go speak to someone, yeah. you know, I say to them, well, you know, like, look, look at, the, I use the mechanic example. Like you, if your car pops up that you need a service every 10,000 Ks, you fucking take it into the shop, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you go to your doctor for your annual physical. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's wrong with going to check in with someone who actually understands mental health and guys just for whatever reason won't do it. They see it as a sign of weakness. Is that, is that a, is that global? Is that a global Global. problem? It's global. The number one, uh, the, the, the highest suicide prevalence age group and the highest, uh, and the fastest growing suicide prevalence are, uh, middle to late age males. And what's little to made little to little to uh, middle to late age white males particularly are just explosive, um, in suicide right now. And what's the, the definition of middle to late? Is that like from? Uh, I, think it's four, I think it's like 50 plus. I, okay. I can look at the actual, I can see that to you after this. I think it's somewhere around 50. Cause like, wow. if you think about like, there's a variety of theories around suicide. The one that I like the most is it's called Joiner's interpersonal theory of relationships. But um, you have three, three, three pieces that have to be present for a suicide event to occur. So acquired means, so lethal means, which, by the way, for everyone listening out there, the number one way to reduce suicide events, period, across the planet, reduce access to firearms. Full stop. Like, that is, that is the way to do it. Um, the other two are perceived burdensomeness and uh, 
uh, lack of belonging. And so if you think about what happens when you get older age, you're a burden on society more perceptually because you're not, you know, you're either older or you're retiring. A lot of your friends are starting to die. Um, and then you, you don't have belonging. And so if you haven't married or your spouse died or your kids have moved away or your friends are passing. And so you get those three things together and you get a real confluence of events. Um, and it's, it's, it's killing just tons of people. Like in the United States, the top 10 causes of death, the only top 10 cause of death that has not gone down over the past 30 years is suicide. In fact, it's gone up. And I mean, if you just think of that lack of identity now, especially if, you know, older people are getting retrenched and made redundant, it's, it's, it's huge. Oh yeah. We are going to be feeling, you know, like the United States, just the United States a month ago passed its entire death toll for Vietnam. Uh, a month and a half ago passed its entire death toll for Vietnam. Um, not long after the death toll for World War One. like we are, we're approaching numbers that we don't really have words for. And it's, it's going to hit, I made the analogy and I know that what I'm about to say is sensitive. So if we have to cut it, we can cut it. But I, I made this analogy. It's like they've done research on the long-term uh, mental health and genetic effects of the Holocaust on, on the Holocaust survivors. Mm. And they have, they have found genetic markers. Like they, like it's, this is things that impacts our, like our literal DNA. Um, and I think in some areas we're going to see that with this, um, mm. because it's something that is so far outside the bounds of norms and expectations. And then you get all like all the shaming that people are doing about wearing masks that, you know, about getting infected and like all these things. And it's, um, it's, it will be decades until we really understand the true long-term mental health effects of, of this. Yeah. Putting to the firearm thing that you mentioned, it's obviously very, very topical. I mean, I live in sunny Australia where you just don't see guns, right? It's a, it's a, it's yeah. amazing. There was obviously that mass shooting, uh, yeah, I think in the seventies, it just, and it was just, uh, I mean, there've been countless documentaries where people have gone to the U S and said, well, this would never work. And they say, well, look at Australia. It has worked. And there hasn't been a mass shooting since. Do you, are there statistics? I mean, there must be statistics of what percentage of suicides happen with firearms. Yeah, it's, um, it's super high. Uh, hold on, let me get my notes really fast. It's, it's the, so what's really interesting about it is, is that statistically speaking, um, women are more likely to attempt. Mm -hmm. Um, men are more likely to have, um, a, a completed attempt. And so there's fewer attempts in men, but they're much more likely to be, um, completed. And it's, Suicide rates, suicides with firearms are lethal about 80 for 85% of the time. Wow. Um, they only accounted for 1% of non, non-fatal attempts. And it's, it's, you know, it's the way that people, you know, if you think about what suicide is, suicide is, is an event, not a condition. And that's really one of the things like to shift the perspective is that, you know, there haven't been a lot of longitudinal research studies done on it, but the ones that they have done is that 90% of people that made it through a suicide event uh, won't go on to attempt again. And, you know, the research really supports the fact that like the reason that women are more likely to have, um, an, un, uh, an, an incomplete suicide attempt is that they use, they'll, they'll, they're more likely to use things like, uh, drugs or poison or, you know, something like that. Mm. Men are much more likely to use firearms and it's really, really hard to survive a firearm attempt. So it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. Oh, here it is. It's uh, guns account for six percent 
of all suicide attempts yeah. total, but they account for 54% of the fatal ones. Wow. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, so I was, I was listening to, uh, what's his name? Jordan Peterson. He's the, the guy about feminism. He's pretty outspoken. This is a lot of people off, but obviously speaks very well. And he was talking about the differences between men, men and women and the fem- feminists don't like him, but he was like, you know, the, the data is in, in terms of when, when you look at suicide and he mentioned exactly that, he said, women are more emotive than men. It just is what it is. And they will always, the stats are in that they try to commit suicide, as you mentioned, but he more often than men, but the men are more aggressive. So when they do try to commit a suicide, you know, because of the aggressive nature as males that we will have the statistics to be successful. So it's yeah, just interesting that you mentioned that because yeah, I was listening, literally listening to that yesterday about the, the differences between men and women. Yeah. And, and like, and what's really interesting is, is like, if you look, if you go upstream just a little, uh, the biobehavioral conditions that are a lot of times uh, potential markers for suicide, uh, anxiety, depression, things like mm-hmm. that. Um, young women suffer at three to five times the rate as young men. And so in the younger years, women are having m- many more, m- many more incidents of, of that type of, of conditions. Um, but they are much less likely to use something that there's no coming back from. That, that makes sense. It's, and so that's really one of the things I think that we're seeing. And like, I also wonder, there was a John Hopkins study a couple of years ago about how uh, young women were really being dramatically impacted uh, with uh, those biobehavioral conditions and then suicide rates um, on, based on social media. Well, what have we all done for the past four months? Yeah. Nothing but social media, you know? Um, and I think that's, that's something that we're going to see the impacts of is a lot of people having that cognitive uh, impact from social media. It's, it's insane, man. And as I, you know, you're not there yet, but I've got a, you know, coming on 15 year old daughter with me full time. And it's, and it's, it's, it's nuts. You know, the, the pressure on those kids is, is, (laughs) oh man, I had a podcast. It was a couple of, couple of goes with Dr. Cassie Klein. And she was talking about this, you know, the psychological effects of social media Uh, and not just women, you know, only, but just all of us is that, she said, if, if you look at me, right, I'm 45. If I'm, if I look at social media and I see say a billion pictures of everyone on the same sort of status as me or below, mm-hmm. I won't acknowledge those. Or yep. if I see 50 guys who have got a 12 pack and on a mega yacht with supermodels, yep. I will only compare myself to those 50 people and I'll feel less than I am, let alone there are like billions of people who have, and I use this loosely less status than me. I want to acknowledge those people. Yeah. And, and then I look to having like a 15 year old daughter and another nine year old daughter coming through who looks at, you know, these Insta famous people and that's, that's their benchmark. And and, and that, that worries the shit out of me. There's, there's a phrase that I use that has not been, um, I'm not a researcher, I'm not a provider, um, but I call it digital dissociative personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And so like dissociative personality disorder is what used to be called multiple personality disorder. And I call digital dissociative personality disorder, like what you're describing is that we have the life we lead, the life we present. So there's two. And then the life that we want to live and that we talk about, like we do live, which is three. And those are like that next level of like looking at these influencers. And like, I will tell you, and like, I, I know Instagram influencers. Um, they're not usually very happy. Like they're not usually very good people either. And it's, um, 
I think social media has a role. I think, you know, in some ways, social media is a lot like the telephone back in the day. Like if you go look at some of the original literature about the telephone and people being like, it's going to destroy the fabric of our society and people are going to make, the arguments are almost identical. And so, you know, each generation has this challenge where we can a little more connected, the more connected, the more connected. And then all things balance is what matters. And that's what we as a culture do not promote largely. It's either I'm at a silent Savasana retreat for five weeks eating nothing but beans and kale, or like I'm social media all the time and an influencer. And there's nothing that's in between, which is I'm going to live my life to the best of my ability, help those around me, try and learn and grow and understand that in all things, there's balance. And that's, that's one of the things I think that if we could teach our kids is, is that is like, let's, let's bring balance. Like what is, what does balance look like? Like my, my oldest son Walker, uh, he, he has my brain very much so. And he got really, really into Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Yeah. Um, and Legend of Zelda uh, and, and a few other video games have some remarkable um, traits in mental health field. There's actually a doctor, uh, Dr. Bean, uh, Dr. Anthony Bean. He has a new book coming out. Um, but he talks about, he's the video game doctor. And like he talks about how to use video games for these things. It's like they have a role, they have a, they have a help. And he just became super fixated on these things in Breath of the Wild. And he's talking. And we went upstairs. Let's see. This would have been last year. So it was seven. And he's laying in bed. And he's asking. He's asking questions. Because, like, I played it. Um, I, I loved it. And, and he pauses. And I, and I you know, I, I <laughs> the chatter stop. And I look over him. And he goes, I'm thinking about this too much, aren't I? And I go, <laughs> yeah, man. I think maybe. I said, you know, this. we talked about what the word obsessed means. And he goes, I'm going to take a break for a while. Fuck me. Like one of the best parenting moments I've had. I'm like, shit, he figured out at 70, but I'm still struggling with in my thirties, which is like, how do I self-regulate? Um, yeah. Like that, but that's, that's that key is like, how do we choose it? Cause you can't get rid of social media. And like, I've seen the effect on kids that don't have social media and you want to make a kid feel even more left out than if they're on social media, it's don't let them be on social media at all. Like they have to make that choice of their own accord. Like, I feel like telling kids you can't be on social media is a lot like indoctrinating them into a religious cult. Like, yeah. they have to make the choice. They want to do it, great. I'm all about agency. But like, telling them that, that, you know. Yeah, go for it. I'm sorry. I'm just, my, my, one, of my, one of my 15-year-old's friends was here the other day. Uh, one, of her, one of her mates, right? And she doesn't, she thinks, she, she's, she's figured it out. I mean, I think she's been here many, many times before. I felt like a child speaking to her, but she was like, no, I'm, I'm just not on it. She says, why? She says, well, I just don't see the point. I don't see the point and I don't, you know, you miss things and it, anyway, it's fake anyway. No one's happy. Yeah. And I, I, so, so my, my 15 year old's got a good friend who basically lives with us anyway, Goldilocks. And so the two of them were like going around because we, you know, we're on the beach here and they're on their phone, on their phone, on the phone. And this other girl was just standing there and they were just like this. So I ended up having a conversation to her and I said, well, doesn't it drive you insane that all your friends are live their life like this? And you go, she goes, nah, I just, I said, she's she was like, I talk to myself a lot, but that's okay. Yeah. It was, it was such this weird existence where that, yeah. I mean, like as my daughter and her friend, the Goldilocks didn't even realize that the school was there. And, but she, she had at 15 figured it out and it was pretty awesome. Yeah. It's, um, that type of awareness is super rare, at least in my, my humble experience. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's also something that I think sometimes we as parents expect our kids to figure things out that 
they won't. And I think it's something that it takes, it takes kind of two things. One, you have to teach the behavior. It's like any other skill. Like you have to teach. This is how to recognize what you're doing. This is how to recognize how you're feeling. So like when my kids get you know jacked up or obsessed, I'll be like, I want you to pause and think about how you feel right now. This is that emotion. So teach them how to recognize it and then teach them the skills to not do it. So I'm going to do social media, but it's going to be limited to these windows. Yeah. Um, but a lot of parents that I've talked to when they've asked me questions about social media, they haven't done either one of those things. And then the third one, the most important one is model the behavior. If you are on your phone all the time, your kid learns that that's the okay thing to do. And like, at this phase, in this phase of my life, I've really started to be uh, aggressive is not the right word, but assertive in modeling the behavior that I want my kids to see. So like, I love to work out. Um, I, you know, I tried to do it three times to four times a week during the, the pandemic. After this, I'm going to go do it. And I, I kept, I'd go in the backyard, I'd go in the back room. You know, my kids would get back from school and need an hour or two to compress. I started to make that my workout and I did it in the living room in front of them. Yeah. Because I realized like, I remember seeing my mom work out when I was a kid and that programs your brain for normalcy and this is what we should do. So if your kids aren't seeing you off your phone, they will learn that that's okay. Yeah. No, I, cause I, what I've done for myself to self-regulate myself, because as you said, we've got, you know, we're not driving, we're not commuting, we've got too much time. I've, I've put a 15 minute timer on Instagram and Facebook. Yo, yo. Um, and, uh, sorry, we're just doing selfies for those listening to the podcast. Um, <laughs> I put a 15 minute regulator on Instagram and Facebook on my phone. And then, you know, How do you do that? Oh, you can, you can do It's called screen time setting. You can actually set it up on, on iOS. So after, after 15 minutes just comes up and you know, sometimes you, you hadn't even, you haven't even got off the toilet in the morning and it's 15 minutes, but then you're like, shit, there's 15 minutes of my day that I, you know, it's, and, and it's, you know, for me, I use it for business as well. I'm, I, 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 to be honest, I hate it because I hate the whole self promotion, blah, blah, blah thing. It's, Look how fancy my life yep. is. I, it, it's vomit in the mouth for me. But you know, at the same time, what Brene Brown said to me, me and 30,000 other people. <laughs> I was like, you know, Brene Brown, like, wait, 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 wait. Uh, is if you don't promote yourself, no one will. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, but again, it's all in balance. Yeah. Like, you know, quality, not quantity, like all of those things. Like I do a lot of social media advocacy work. If people want to find me on Facebook, Hudson Harris on, uh, on Facebook, and I'll put out a couple memes a day, two, three memes a day. And then that's largely it. Yeah. I don't usually actually scroll through Facebook much because of that same thing. But I do want to try and have that. But it's, again, how do we find balance in ourselves? Yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, I actually went to, a, which is another tangent. I went to a psychic on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thursday last week. I'm, I, lo- I love that kind of stuff as well, which is, which is not the topic of today. But I was, you know, having the same thing and, you know, every, every the last few I've been to, like, you got to keep going, you got to keep going. This is your path. This is your path. And I'm like, oh, but, you know, I'm struggling in the social world where I just don't want to show my life. Right. Like, I mean, I know if I put out the life I live, everyone will go like, shit, that's cool. But then it's to me, it's like, well, it's not, so it's not, I, it's not right. I the same thing. I, I've been through the same thing. And like, it's one of the things I talked in therapy about as well uh, at length is like, so I'll share something with you that I haven't really like talked much about. Mm. And like on public is so I, I love giving talks I love getting on stage like it's one of those things that like it sets my brain on fire to be able to share with people and like I, I think that I'm good at it I think that I have an ability to take complex concepts make them simple and understandable and get people fired up about doing stuff but I up until the last few talks I gave what uh, had complete dissociative events during talks I would see myself 
outside of myself mm-hmm. giving talk and um and unpacking that with my therapist uh you know i think that when we have a world and a career where we are often on stage or we need to promote ourselves we tend to give pieces of who we are um not full picture and so for me what it was is that i wasn't i was able to do all the things that my brain does well mm. but i wasn't putting pieces of myself into it because i was trying to either protect myself or really i didn't want to promote myself i didn't feel like that was important and so i worked really hard over months and months of therapy to like figure out that i do actually need to share the successes that i have i need to actually do that because it's also part of recognizing our own self-worth and, and our own value to ourselves that like yeah. this is a way for us to do this and, like my therapist was like super basic like i want you to go and like i was in a magazine put the magazine on social media i got an award like put the award on social media like you're not it's not self-aggrandizing she's like there's a difference and this is where i think the real key comes in we're we're taught that being vain uh, or narcissistic is bad uh we're taught that being humble is good we're not really given accurate definitions of what humble and proud are but we're given really accurate outcomes of venal and uh prideful uh people and we're told not to be this but we're not told how to actually have pride in what we do and pride in who we are. And so like the last few talks I gave, you know, I gave a uh human-centered design and you had a hacker way to a better life. And I adopted a bunch of human-centered design principles for basically self-improvement. But I put myself in it. I talked about my own mental health issues, I talked about my own struggles, and it was the first that last talk uh was for you know, they flew me up to Palo Alto and it was for one of those private conferences for one of the big massive firms up there it was one of the best talks i've ever given mm. because and people came up to me just like this is so real like i felt like i connected like all of those things so i i hear you i challenge you clint one thing a week about you yeah whatever it may be like for me like i have found a really good outlet that i feel comfortable sharing is my woodworking so like i'll put my woodworking up and like i just had i worked for a year on one skill one technique and i finally got it and like oh my god it's gorgeous and normally i would just i might send it to a couple friends yeah but now i post it because we need we do we need to recognize that even though social media is evil i get it it's still a source of validation that we don't have a lot of connections that we used to where we could share stuff and it is a way that it can be positive so i would challenge you tag me in every single one i want to know <laughs> tell me uh but make it count like, he's like he's surfing again like shit <laughs> Yo, no think- that's great because what is surfing surfing is being present yep. surfing is self care surfing is exercise surfing is boxes, you right? want to promote for yourself and yeah. to show others this is how you want to live your life like there's yeah. nothing wrong with you saying i'm going surfing again yeah I, the the point of what that psychic said through spirit she says they're telling me to teach who you are if you teach who you are and i and i was just this amazing I, thing I, I, holy I, shit man yeah. i man i'm going i've i've got that sent off to get printed up in my office like as a it's like teach who you are because if you, i teach can i get a copy absolutely i would love that yeah i just thought it was like this this i just it just like uh, getting goosebumps now thinking about it but no, I, I me too like my you you made me tingle in ways that i'm not used to tingling from men like well, you've, you've met me before bro 
but but when you when you talk about the sorry back to your story um like stand-up comedy fascinates me i'll never do it but like just the art of it because like you um, i love speaking and and you know, i think i'm i'm a decent public speaker but you know the ultimate art of speaking the ultimate art of speaking is stand-up comedy, right? I mean, that's that's a, that's an art form. And it's that art. was actually my goal for, I mean, I had a lot of goals for 2020. That yeah. was one of them, though, uh, by COVID. And I'm, I'm still going to do it, but I'm going to do stand-up comedy because I have the same brain. I'm like, that's the pinnacle. It, it, it is. If, if you're a speaker, that is the art. And and when you when you, when you you go through, like, you know, the Kevin Hart stuff and all the, all the, all the guys who've really made it, when, when their careers pivoted and shifted is when they started talking about themselves. Yeah. They weren't telling jokes. They were they were explaining their life, which is life's fucking funny, right? I mean, shit happens all the time, which is hilarious. They were telling truth. Exactly. Yeah. People want truth in a world that is inundated with social media and influencers and bullshit. People who are authentic and show up authentic are so so unbelievably rare. And I will tell you, and like full disclosure, it fucking hurts to be mm. authentic. But the universe, at least you know. My, my philosophy of the universe is you will only ever get out something equal to what you put in an experience. And if you're not willing to risk yourself and risk parts of yourself and risk, you know, putting your heart out there or getting up on stage, like, whoo, I can tell you when I bombed on stage, like even just about even saying those words, those, it's just like fucking flashbacks in my brain, but they, they make the times when it's just been a standing ovation that much more real because people want authenticity. But, but here, here's, Here's something else that I'm wrestling with at the moment is the, the reason people do put up this image, you know, that uh, image is, is fear, right? I mean, it's fear of rejection. Right. And I, I recently, and I, I watch every single documentary under the sun. I've recently subscribed to Gaia, which is not good for me, right? It's the, all the old <laughs> aliens and stuff. And, but um, there's, a, there's a conspiracy theorist guy called David Icke. Mm-hmm. He's a British guy, well-known. He's, you know, he's, he's out there, but... He, he was a professional footballer in the UK, BBC sports presenter, good-looking dude. He went to Panama. He had an experience, and he came mm-hmm. back and told everyone that he was possessed by spirits, and he got on a talk show uh, in, the seven, in the early 90s, and the, the, there's a clip from the TV presenter saying, like, we are la- we're not laughing with you. We are laughing at you, and the whole audience pisses out in, in live TV. And he said, as, as devastating as it was at that time, what it did, it was it showed him that it was his ultimate fear. Like he was, he said, he he said he was ridiculed at biblical levels. But what that yeah. did, it set him free because he didn't have fear anymore. It was his yeah. biggest gift, and he had this freedom where he said, you know, what, I'm going to write whatever I write. I don't care because no one can ridicule me more than I have now. And it's, then he went on to write 20 books and you know do all the things he's done. But because he let go of fear and let go of that, people judging him. The, the- there's something so beautiful about that. Like I, I, I wanted to learn to play guitar. Like I, I can play really one song. Well, Blackbird by the Eagles. I can yeah. trap pick the shit out of that song. Everything else was a struggle. Like, and I had this, a, a guitar instructor in my freshman year of college, this gnarly road worn dude. He played with Willie, like all this stuff. And yeah. he had this one little tiny guitar room, like up in, uh, DuPont Circle in DC and like had a storied career. And I walk in with this brand new guitar I'd gotten for my birthday. And he goes, I'm going to tell you something and it's going to carry you for the rest of your life. I want you to take a pencil or a pen and I want you to ding the fuck out of that guitar right now. 
And he said, because you won't ever care if it goes wrong again. He's like, and that, that applies to when you play publicly, when you yeah. meet people, he's like, that is the key. And like that lesson of like, you know, you have to take your licks. And the truth is, and I think the lesson there, especially from the guy you talked about and something that I've learned, like, I mean, we don't have time to dig into all the shit that I've been through professionally, but the only source of true validation you will have is inside of you. That doesn't mean that you don't have to push out and share things like I say and, and do things and meet people and gain it from there. But that core ability that like, I am going to be who I am going to be regardless, that's what gets me through the day. And like, it's not easy, but I am proud of the past year or two of my life. I have taken the high road because that's who I wanted to be, even when it was hard. Holy God, was it hard. But that sole source of truth of like, that's, if you have that, then like, you really cleave to that, there's very little you can't accomplish. And, and here's, here's the other tangent in terms of who you want to attract in your life is where I am at, at the moment. So if I'm going to be me, I'm going to be authentically me and, 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 and assume that that's good enough. I, I know, from, you know, speaking personally, a lot of the, the, the facade of who I was in the past was just to make sure that everyone liked me. Right. But you, 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 if you live in that facade and not that raw authenticity, you're not attracting the right people in your life. And when you are authentically raw and who you are, then, then the right people are going to come into your life. Um, yeah. Because, at, but someone who actually wants to be with you, not the facade of who you um, portraying to be. It's true. Like it's something that that being true without facade and not caring people thinks it's so hard. Like, because you, there's so many people, the vast majority of people are never, never going to get there. But it's also one of those things that like, if, if you're not comfortable with who you are and you're not trying to be authentic, you won't be happy. Like the way that I describe it is, is that every, every human has kind of two pieces in their brains on the left. You have your values. That's your structure. That's what you do. That's your, that's your code, whatever it is on the right. You have your behaviors. If your behaviors and your values don't match, you get cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And when you have cognitive dissonance, all the shit's going to fall apart, small, big, whatever. And if, when you have cognitive dissonance, you will attract people who also have cognitive dissonance and they will reinforce your cognitive dissonance and make it even worse. And it's, it's one of those things where sometimes we're thrown off the cliff. Sometimes we jump off the cliff, but like I had, um, I had people in my life that were telling me that I wasn't a designer, that I couldn't give talks on stage, that I uh, couldn't be in front of clients, that I didn't know what I was doing, that I wasn't going to be able to do the things that I wanted to do and design things, and that nobody really wanted to listen. And I believe them. I believe them. In my heart and soul, I believed it. At the same time, over the course of that same six-month period that led up to me uh, changing things, I was in Business Insider. I was in Forbes twice. I gave two talks at South by Southwest, a talk at Hims. I was in a global suicide awareness campaign. Like all of these things, all the evidence pointed me to I was doing it. Yeah. But it wasn't, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it until I decided for myself that I wasn't going to stay in an environment that didn't support me believing in myself. And like when I left, um, it was not pleasant. And I, I went out uh, in May of last year with a thesis that people wanted to talk to somebody who could help them build 
beautiful solutions that cross sectors, that use technology to enable care and experience and, and all that stuff. I went out with one client. It's $75 an hour in five hours a week. Uh, three months later, I was brought on um, by one of the largest metropolitan areas in the United States to create the strategy to redesign a billion-dollar behavioral health system. And, and looking back, do you remember what was the straw that broke the camel's back You know, during that phase? What, what is that, like, fuck it, I'm going? Um, really, it was, I mean... It, the people that I had really relied upon uh, to trust uh, and to be honest and to hold my confidence uh, didn't. Mm. And I, you know, 2019 was just, I, you know, you know, talk about a kick in the teeth. It was uh, all of the work stuff happened. Um, the, uh, the people that I had trusted, you know, threw me under the bus. Um, my, uh, my nephew of 13 years old, uh, died in August. Uh, my dog of 13 years old died. I lost two uncles and then I lost two friends to suicide right at, uh, New Year's. And it was just this like, and it was just over and over and over. Um, and at the same time was dealing with just an unimaginable amount of shit, uh, personally. And I couldn't. I didn't know how to quit. I couldn't like, you know, I, I, I've talked about my therapist and like, I've talked to her through these things. And she's like, Hudson's like, honestly, I don't know how you're here. She's like, you're the most resilient. I say this with, with the comment, you're the most resilient person that I've ever met. And I believe that what I call it is I call it process based resilience. And I don't know now what the outcome of what I'm doing will be. Uh, I don't know uh, if I'll be successful. I don't know if what I want to happen will happen. But what I do know is that my process works. And that if I trust in my process, which means I'm really trusting in me, that I'm going to show up whole, I'm going to show up uh, with authenticity, and I'm not going to be afraid to speak my mind, shit works. Mm. Does it always work out how I think it does? No. But when it doesn't work out, does it lead to something that's way fucking better? Absolutely. And so it's one of those things that like 2019 was the worst year of my entire life, just across just a crushing amount of, of, of spectrum. Also had Lyme, also with Lyme disease. I mean, like there was very little not going wrong. Um, so it's sitting in June 2020. That's a big statement because, my, yeah. my, because my, let me be honest, 2020 hadn't been a fucking cakewalk for me personally or for us as a, <laughs> as a culture. Uh, and yet, all of that, I wouldn't trade exactly where I am and exactly what I'm doing for anything. Like any of the jobs I thought I had to have, any of the, uh, the personal relationships, any of those things, I wouldn't trade a single thing. Um, but that, that, that belief that like the process was going to work got me through and like fucking struggled with depression and anxiety and my own dark thoughts and then add Lyme disease in there, which does all sorts of shit in mental health and creates this mental fog and this inability to process quickly. My brain speed is one of the things I was most proud of and Lyme took that away from me. Wow. Um, but I made a commitment that like I was not, I didn't, I didn't have a quit button and it wasn't like a never say die toxic positivity. 
I felt it and I sat in it and I fucking lived in the experience of how fucking terrible this was. And then when I could, I picked myself back up and I said, all right, it's time to keep going. And like November of last year, um, with all of the things I just described happening, I felt stronger mentally than I had been in my entire life. I felt confident, even though I didn't have steady work, I was consulting for a bunch of different places. Yeah. And I made a commitment to myself that I wanted the outside of my body to match the inside of my brain. And I started in uh, December 1st, uh, I started working out in between December and the start of COVID uh, lockdown in March. I did, I went to the gym over a hundred times. Wow. And um, through COVID worked out um, three to four times a week. I went from, you know, whatever I was at, you know, 38, 40 ways down to 34 inches. I don't know what that is in centimeters. Like it's more than a furlong, but less than No, that. we actually use 30, 30, we actually use that for waists here. So thank oh, you. Perfect. Okay. So, it's the first metric you've given me that I understand. Excellent. I went from a 38 and then yeah. not 32. I went wow. from an extra large shirt to a medium. Um, and I've never felt better about what I'm doing. And now that like, I'm trying to reconnect and, and find those pieces, like I can't, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm reasonably confident that 2020 has not even begun to kick me in the nuts yet, mm. but I know I got a cup and that cup is like me being confident that the process is going to work, that I'm going to get through this, you know, with friend, you know, friends and my hobbies and all that stuff. So, so here's actually the tagline when I first started my business is we are the lucky ones, you know, focused on divorce, men are getting divorced because, and the reason I said that was when you go through shit, like proper shit, um, it gives you a different perspective on the world. A, it, it, it gives you the ability to, 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 to look at other people with empathy because until you've gone through deep shit yourself, you never know what anyone else has gone through. Yep. Um, so that saying of, you know, until you've walked a mile in a man's shoes, don't. But secondly, through, through that pain and when, through those rock bottom moments, it, it, it gives you the opportunity to change. Now, you know, humans for whatever reason, and this is for, with my programs, I'm trying to figure out how do I make people change? How do I make people evolve? Because, you know, I look at the data, people sign up, they're gun ho for the first two weeks and then they drop off. Yep. You know, and, and that happens, I'm sure, with weight loss, with fitness, with mental health, fucking with everything, right? You know, people don't stick to stuff. And, and that, that in, but I believe if you've gone through so much shit and you're in those black dark space, you're in, or you know, I've been there as well, you actually have to change. You have to evolve. You have to relook at who you are. You have to relook at everything. Otherwise, yep. you're not going to come out of the other side. And that, and that is, shit as it can be, I believe is this enormous, enormous gift that we've been given. Yeah. It's uh, adapt, improvise, and overcome. Like, I'm going through a divorce right now, too. And it's, I think, here, this is something that I would love to share with your listeners because this is something that, like, I've really come to understand um, recently. I, I went out um, uh, with a couple friends and... Uh, I had been delayed because, you know, something was going on with my, my sister and like, it was her nephew or my nephew, her son that had passed. And he was like a son to me. Like it was, it was just, it was crazy losing him. And they said, you know, what happened? And so I shared with them, you know, and like talking about how your nephew was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma um, and like, and, and died. I mean, just like all of that journey. And like, I was flying back to see him to be there for him during surgeries and like all of this stuff. Um, I shared it with, with, with these two friends, one of which I had not met the other one I had, and we started talking and, and this, and this, this woman looked at me and she goes, so what have you learned about me during this conversation? 
what she was trying to say was, I want to talk, I want you to, I want to talk about, I want to share with you who I am too. But it really rubbed me the wrong way. And like, it took me a while to really unpack things. And like, I've kind of come to this understanding that like, we as a culture, uh, and maybe as a species, invariably compare experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my weather is 22 degrees, yours is 23. Like, even just like that, it, that initial interaction, like we always want to compare because what we want to have is a common ground, a shared experience to, to understand. The problem is, is that what you get is you get people, especially when you come to grief and loss and divorce and all this stuff, people will say, I can't imagine what it's been like for you or what you're going through. It must be so hard. Okay, well, if I wanted somebody to blow butterflies and glitter at my ass, I would have gone to a different bar. Mm. What I want and what we need to do for our people is validate the experience. That was really fucking hard. Mm. Period. It's really amazing you've made it through this. And then if the moment is right, and this is always the question, people either want to be supported or they, and, they, and, they want, and they want to be listened to or they want to be supported and they want you to share back. And you have to listen. You have to. And I just, I'll tell you what, Clint, I just ask people. When people, my friends come in and start talking to us, I said, I'm here for you. And what you're going through really fucking sucks. I need to know how to support you. Do you want me to listen? Do you want me to support? Or do you want me to send you dank memes? Those are my three choices. And I realized that like that friend was, was trying to redirect, which I get it. That's a heavy conversation. But without the validation, um, it felt really weird and it felt really uncomfortable because, you know, my, my sister is, you know, dating. She divor- was divorced a long time ago. And having lost a child is something that pretty much will invariably come up in the first meeting. I mean, like, it's a core. How many kids do you have? Well, um, and Gavin was like a son to me. He comes up all the time for me. Yeah. And what I've realized is, is that people have said stuff to me and more to my sister of like, I can't imagine what you've been through. And that phrase is such fucking bullshit because of course you can't. I can't imagine what you've been through. The issue is not saying, I know what you've been through. It's people be like, you know, Clint, man, I broke my ankle. You're like, oh man, I broke my knee three years ago. I know exactly what you're going through. That's not the point. Like, I think, and, and we teach people to build bridges with shared experience, which is great, but you need to build bridges with shared experience, not comparative experience. Because if I had to go find uh, a partner that had lost someone who was like a child to them to have a shared experience to them be on the same level, then that makes me feel more alone and isolated than ever before. Mm-hmm. So it's a shared experience, not a comparative experience. And I think that that, that distinction is really important. Like, ask what people need for support and share to commiserate, don't share to compare. Because I've talked to people like, and that particular friend, like I talked to them afterwards, they have had no loss in their life yet. Yeah, so they have no idea. And and like, and and that's fine. But you have to then be self-aware of that lack, which is okay, God bless. I'm so happy that you haven't. Like, I don't feel any animosity or bitterness towards that. But you do need to be aware that people have gone through shit that you haven't and how to interact with them in a way that doesn't invalidate their experience or worse, make them feel bad for wanting to talk about it. You know, like that's, that's that key piece. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky one because I'm going to put myself under the microscope here. Um, you know, in, in terms of if I look back before any shit happened in my life, um, going back 15 years, right. It was all, white picket fence, you know, and I, I, I was judgy, no doubt about it, you know, 
Um, I, I, I didn't have empathy towards fucking anyone. It was my way or the highway. It was a bit of a dick if I think about it. Um, but it's... I not, still... But, uh, thanks, man. <laughs> not, not valid, but, but I mean, I, I just... There'd be no trauma in my life, really. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I'm not validating her behavior, but uh, unless you've had... Put it this way, the, the people who've had crazy stories happen and crazy shit happening are generally empathetic, fascinating people to speak to who will, all, you know, who will be there. Those who've gone through the, with rose-tinted glasses, living in the matrix, they, they just don't get it, in my yeah. opinion. I, and, and I don't know what it is, but it's just that's, and, I, and, I, and I've lived both sides personally because, you know, my, my mom and dad were married and, you know, we had a beach house and everything was okay, you know. Yeah. I mean, Granted, they fucked me up because of narcissism, but that's another story, right? That came later. Yeah, you can do a whole different topic on uh, social <laughs> narcissism. You know, there's something. But you, know, but you know, but you know what I mean. Like, I can, I can yeah. see, I can see that because I was like, well, get on with it. You know, well, what are you whining about? But, but, and then shit started happening to me, and I'm like, oh my fuck, you're, you, you were such a dick. You know, you yeah. were so, you were so mean to these people because you just had no idea what they'd possibly gone through. But that's growth. I mean, like, you know, what's really interesting about what you said is like, you sparked something in my brain right there. It's like, if you think about where you started, which is, I'm my own person. I know what I need to do. Fuck everybody who doesn't go my way. Mm. And where we want to be, which is to our core truth, true to who we are and do our own thing. One of those focuses on telling other people what to do, pushing them away. And my way is the right way, the highway. The other one is my path is my path. And I understand you're on a different path. They're, they both have a similar, they're on the same spectrum because one of them is really like aggressive, outward focused and egotistical. The other one is really introspective and like, I know that I'm on my path, but I'm not going to go tell people what their path should be. But at the same time, if I'm in a professional environment and someone's coming at me with like guns blazing, I'll be like, I, I'm, I'm calmer. This person, the person that was like egotistical yeah. and like, fuck you, you're, I would vocal and just fuck you, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But this person, I am calm. I am the fucking rock in the storm. Um, and, and it's interesting because I think it's the same. I think it's one spectrum. Yeah, you, but it's, it comes to, and when you come to energy forces in the universe, it's high vibe versus low vibe. Yeah. You know, that's, that's love, sense of purpose, truth, you know, center eye. Like, that's cool. I get you. I hear you. I acknowledge you, but I'm not going to do that. This is like, fuck you. Like, I'm the best. This is the only way. It's, it's the same. It's just that different frequency. Yeah. And I think like, there's one other piece I want to say to that because I want to give you a compliment. And like, I think one of the really important things is with social media, we lose touch with friends and that's the weird thing. Like we don't talk as much. Um, but like the friends that you have over time who are one understand you and want to understand you, but two want to understand themselves and grow. If you had, if you had told me four or five years ago when we first met that we'd be sitting here talking about high vibe and low vibe and egotistical versus you know, self core truths and how we've progressed. I wouldn't have believed it for myself. I wouldn't have believed it for you. It's like, I just see you as like, like kudos, man. Like you have, you have done the fucking work to get yeah. to where you are and to, and, to, and to grow and do that. Like that's, that's hard work and good on you, man. Thanks man. Back at you, brother. So should we talk about suicide prevention? Because I don't think we've, we've been going for over an hour and I don't think we've Oh, shit. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, let's do some suicide prevention and I got to go make some dinner too. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to take my kids surfing. Um, no, I'm actually with school holidays here again. Can you believe it? So we went homeschooling for a couple of months and now they're back on holiday. 
Um, so let's let's talk about you know your why and suicide prevention and, and how you. From what I remember from from a story in a bar, it was um, a family member and how how that. You know, from from a from a, from the legal system um, in California, where you went into the suicide prevention. I don't want to call it yeah. that area. Um, mental health has been something that's been in my family for a long time. Mm. Uh, but my family's also been in the mental health business for a long time, um, and so it's something that I grew up around, and it's something that I was always passionate about. Um, and it was something that like it really resonated with me as a, as a cause. It really resonated with me as something that like, I know what it's like to be at my darkest. I know what it's like to feel alone. Um, and I had some, uh, some brushes, not, per, not my own, not, I, I, I have not had an attempt, but I had some friends that did, um, when I was younger and, you know, it was funny. We talked about that, um, one of the SAP conferences that, that we were at together might've even been the first one. I was on stage um, talking about how to use data and technology to uh, prevent suicides. Like it was a, a, one of my penultimate career moments. Like it was incredible. It was, it was just, it was so much of what I wanted. Um, and I got off stage and I had a text uh, that my cousin who has the exact same first name and middle name that I do uh, had attempted. Yeah, I distinctly, and, I distinctly remember that, man. Yeah, it was, uh, I, it was just, it was so crushing because it was just, it was one of these things where it's like, who am I to be out here talking about this when I can't even help my own people? My, you know, and, and like he, you know, Hudson and I are, you know, we're, we're, close, we're much closer now, I would say, than we were before, but like we always, you know, we hung out, we knew each other, like, but it, it, it strikes where you least expect it. And like, it's, it's a hidden killer. And it's something that like, we can do so much good by improving awareness and the and normalcy and the ability to talk about it. Like I didn't talk about any of my mental health issues up until a year ago on stage. And now I talk about it every single fucking time. Mm. Um, and I think that that was really, I was already committed to the cause and believed that that was something that really pushed me forward because I wanted to use my talents and my abilities to make a difference um, and to really do it. And like when I left my last job, like I set, you know, my intentions, I wanted to have, I still have them in my phone and I look at them every now, you know, I wanted to have a culture that supported me. I wanted to have leadership that inspired me and I wanted to have a cause I believed in. And the overarching goal was I wanted to be guided to where my talents could be used to impact the most people. Um, and like I, I, you know, I shared with you know, three months later, I was doing it was designing a behavioral health system for millions of people. Um, I also, so that was one experience. And then I lost two friends to suicide last year. Uh, one of those friends was somebody in suicide prevention. He, uh, he, had, he had just reached just an unbelievable role and was, we were working on stuff with veterans. We were doing stuff all over the country, like global projects and planning. And um, he died by suicide. And that was someone who knew the research, who knew the outlets, who knew to call, and it still happened. And that one hit really hard. That was um, just for New Year's. So, and, so um, can, I, can I dive yeah. into that, if you don't mind? I mean, it's yeah. just when you talked about, you know, for someone who doesn't know much about the space, the, the, the early... And, and, and I'm triggering, a, I had another podcast with someone I know who, who 
who had a master's in domestic violence and ended up in a domestic violence situation. So I know it, ha- it, ha- it happens, right? What are the early warning signs? What, what can people do? And, and, and if you do want to share or not, what, what do you believe was the, something that pushed him to that point? Because, yeah, I mean, you, if you have information, it's power, right? But, I mean, there must, something must have triggered him in a way. You know, um, I'll say this is like suicide, you know, for people who are data oriented um, or love data, the phrase we're about to say just sends their brains into, you know, paralysis. But yeah. suicide is a multivariate outcome. Um, the best clinical minds in the world are generally a coin toss at predicting suicide. Despite all the things we know, all the research we've done, yeah. um, it's a public health crisis. It's the number two killer of K through 12. Wrap your brain around that. It's the number one killer of college-age students outside of vehicular accidents. Um, and it's one of those things that everyone's journey is different, which is why, like, whenever I talk about suicide, I, you know, I talk about this, this difference between an event and a condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when that hopelessness, when the, when the pain uh, outweighs the tolerance for pain, um, that pain can come from so many different directions. Um, and, you know, I don't want to opine on, you know, him directly, but I will say that like knowing him and knowing the environments he was in and knowing friends who've also struggled in, in really complex environments as well is that when the people around us don't see our worth, mm-hmm. even when we're doing the best work, it can cause that level of pain to rise. Like I know that like when I was really at my worst and like I shared with you, know, all the different things that I had accomplished in doing like, and dude, that was three months after I won my first innovation award with SAP. And that was actually, that was actually bookended. And then the second SAP innovation award was that may, you know, after all, after I, you know, all that stuff had happened. Um, but even when I was doing all of that, the people that I'd surrounded myself with, um, this is my personal experience because I can't speak it. Like the people that I surrounded myself with didn't see my worth. And it, it, it really, it's crushing because if, you, if we can't trust the people around us to validate who we are and help us through the hard times, because here's the thing, I talk a lot about having a solid core of truth, of understanding I'm on a path and a purpose and things. The truth is I reach out to my friends. I reached out to you and we talked about divorce. I, you know, I reach out to my sister. I reach out you know, to those core people. If the people you trust don't believe in you, if the people you trust are toxic, they're not helping you, that makes your pain tolerance, my opinion, not you know anyone else, your pain tolerance lowers. And what'll happen is, is you'll start to feel that cascade effect of this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. And it just, it, you reach this overwhelming point where the pain is so much, you can't bear it anymore. And I think that for a lot of the people that I've talked to who had attempts, um, for me at my deepest and darkest place, that's where the dark thoughts came from. Mm-hmm. Is it's that 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 lack of ability to tolerate any more pain, and I think that that's something that like I talk with a lot of suicide survivors, a lot of um, uh, clinicians and advocates, and I think that this um, this ability to stop pain is a much more accurate representation of what suicide is for people. And like, I'm like, this may get a lot of flack, but like I spent several years trying to understand the concept of agency and suicide. 
And prior to that, like I was someone who was like, if somebody's suicidal, they need to be put in the hospital and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And like, I still do think that like inpatient hospitalization is part of the spectrum of care. Like, I, I, I do. I think that is. But it wasn't really until I went through my own really dark place that I understood that like for some people, the ability to have an option, a choice, any fucking choice. Mm is what keeps them going. And so the ability to know that like, I have, I have friends who, you know, have suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts uh, and have never come close to planning or anything. And like something else that like I was never taught until like I was in the field is that we as creatures, as humans, everyone has had suicidal thoughts. Like I want to pause and say it again. Everyone you know has had suicidal thoughts. So, There's so I, 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 I have stood on a cliff before, which is no one's ever heard, ever. Um, when through my ex-wife's first infidelity, um, now, you, now I'm in, in the white picket fence, the house that's on the cover of the, you know, the, 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 the famous house magazine and the multi-million dollar house and everything's, you know, the big cars and, infidelity happens and the pain that I went through, mate, I, 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 I think I'm a pretty tough, resilient human being, um, yep. physically. Um, but emotionally you could, you could never, I can never explain to people yeah. the amount of pain and, and helplessness that I felt that I went for a run up the mountain actually in Cape Town, Chapman's peak. And I, and I, and I, it was dark yep. and I just stood there and I looked yeah. because I was in so much fucking pain. Yeah. Um, that I, I, yeah, you, I, 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 I can't, and, and it was, you know, I had two kids at the time and if it wasn't for them, I would have, I, I think I would have gone because it was just, it just hurt so much. Yeah. So I can Thank actually fucking understand much. it. I can, yeah. I can, I get it, man. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that, man. That's, um, that's powerful. I wish I was there to, uh, to give you a hug. I guess I'm really, really glad that you're here. Hmm. Like I really am. And like, that's, um, that's hard stuff. And like, it's, you know, it's one of those things, like there's a lot of different approaches to it. Like the kids are one, but I know people who've had kids that have died by suicide. Like you have to really figure out what those things are for you. Like they're protective, like they're protective factors. There's, um, I just did, uh, I'm on a, a weekly show, um, suicide prevention and social media. And last week we had, um, a guest on, uh, Anne Marie, who's the founder of, um, stupid, dumb cancer. And, uh, what would you miss? And the, what would you miss, uh, organization is about asking people, what would you miss mm -hmm. and helping people early identify what are the small things? Cause like a lot of the research supports that, like, you think that like a lot of times the big things will keep you from being suicidal a lot of times it's the really tiny things and like a lot of the anecdotes and a lot of the stories, you know, when you, if you can sit down and talk with someone who's suicidal or, you know, stand, you know, literally standing on a cliff, they don't need to be told what's wrong. They don't need to be told that what they're doing is wrong, but what they do need is they just need someone to talk to. They need to be heard. They need to, they need to listen. And like one of the most powerful ones, and this was one that Anne Marie had shared is that like, uh, I think it was her a friend or her brother and, and he was suicidal and had planned and was there. And I think someone asked him a question about coffee. Mm. 
and he said he was going to miss coffee and that and he didn't and that, like that, that simple yeah. that simple motion the gesture the smell the grind all of that stuff and like i think what, what like what i found is it's so easy in our world to get uh in our own head and the pain is so much and all of these things are going that like sometimes what we need to do is is come right back down to the core and be like what's a simple pleasure what's something that i would miss if i wasn't here like you know when i was younger it was you know trips and experiences and all this stuff and now i'm like i miss the feeling of like my palm sander in my hand sanding wood and listening to loud music or i'd miss the sound of the palm trees outside my window at two o'clock in the morning those types of things make us present and they help us get through that event you know it's you know, you know, at some time, just when when you when you, I can't remember the exact wording you use, but when you said people feel that they don't have um, support structure around them, mm-hmm. um, actually, one of the you know in in the divorce course I put together, I've got a whole module on. You know, I've got eight. It's an essential. It's eight week framework. One of the eight. One of the one of the weeks is support structure, right? So who 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 supports you? Who's around you? That's a therapist, you know, and all the various different people that that you need as your team. Um, and, and just, I think when you said people don't feel validated by those around them, and if I'm going back to my darkest day or that day, I think for me at that time, my identity was the provider, the nice guy. And, and, and that got taken away from me. We are the strong ones and people don't check on us. Like when, when that gets taken away, when you're not able to do those things for the people that like you've pinned, like, this is the person you pick to be with you, to be your partner, to support mm-hmm. you, to validate you, all those things, and you provide for them, and then all of a sudden you can't, it, it, it cuts the legs out from you. Yeah, well, in my situation, they chose someone else to provide for them, and I'm like, oh, shit. Like, you know, I didn't have identity of self then. My, I was just a, uh, and, and that's all 100% on me, right? I, I was just a, a server, a giver. Um, yeah. That's how I defined who I was at that time. Um, and when that got taken away, I was like, well, fuck, what's the, what's the point of this? I've done, I've done, I've done everything to the, to the best of my ability and to the best, you know, as according to the textbook, I've given everything there it is, yeah. and, it, and, and it wasn't enough. Um, so, so what's the point? Yeah. But just, that was kind of, yeah, no, I'm with you. And like, I, in my head. the other aspect I think with divorce that a lot of people don't realize is like, it doesn't matter if, unless it's amicable, and I mean actually amicable, not the bullshit Hollywood amicable, we're like, oh, we're just going to co-parent and not be mad at each other. Like every divorce has emotions and fear and anger and rage and all the grief and loss and like all that stuff. What I think nobody tells you about divorce, so like two things, nobody tells you with kids that you're adding a mortgage payment and childcare for the first five years. Just nobody tells you like, Jesus Christ, I wish somebody had told me it was going to be an extra mortgage payment. Not that it would have changed anything, but that's one. The other thing is, is that nobody tells you how much loss you're going to have. I have friends that have never fucking reached out to me that know. And I told never checked in on me, family, people that have blamed me for all kinds of shit. Like it has been the great shedding event, but what it does is that none of those people were really real for me. They were real to the image that I put out or they were real to whatever it was. But I also took the approach that I will always take the high road. I will never say a bad word about uh, anyone involved in my divorce to my children, even though I know that that won't be reciprocated. But that loss of community, even if it's not really a community that was there to support you, is so hard. I had one friend tell me, 
I don't want to know what happened because I want to support your soon to be ex. And if I know, I won't be able to do that. Wow. There you go. And I think the thing that like took me a long time to really get at um, is I'm a, I'm a good human. I'm a kind human. I'm a giver. Like I, I work really hard to bring up the, the resonance and the, and the light of everybody around me, mm. arguably way too much in, in the past and, and self-sacrificed. But what amazed me is, is that the people that were so willing to take were the first ones to assume that I was the problem. They were the first ones to assume that I was the issue at the root without talking, without discussing, without trying. Um, and I'll say, like, if you've got a friend that's going through this, the absolute bar none best outreach I got was a simple text message. Hey, friend, I hear you're in a lot of pain. Mm. What can I do? No judgment, nothing but validation. And how can I help? And that was, you know, that was the best response I got, you know, and like, I, I've got my core group of four or five people. Um, thankfully, I'm not talking to all of them every single day like I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you burn, you burn up some data. There. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, and then mine started three weeks before quarantine. So at a time when I needed to be out, I needed to be with my friends, I needed to do this stuff is when everything went. Well, that's, you know what, that could be a blessing in disguise because that's what I'd actually challenge guys with. And, and I was guilty of this as well is, is, you know, not sitting with myself and true thoughts. So yeah. You know, so when I did have that alone time, oh, I'm going to go surf. I'm going to run out of a mountain. I'm going to meet some for coffee. And, you know, because you're just, you're just running away from that fucking hard and dark times that you have to sit with yourself, um, which is brutal, right? So it could, trust me, it could be, I believe it could be a blessing in disguise for you. I'll, I'll agree with that. And like, I have, um, I have a meme. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you if you want to share with people. But like, it's, it basically says, you know, sit with it, sit with it, sit with it. Mm. You have to sit with the pain. You have to sit with what's going on. You don't have to wallow in it. But if you don't sit in it, if you don't really give yourself the time to experience it and understand it, you'll only ever be running. And like, I found that like when I didn't sit with the feelings, I developed a sense of urgency, whether it was a task, a hobby, an event, uh, friends, whatever it was. And that sense of urgency was really me going, oh my God, I don't want to think about this. I got to go do something else. And so like, you have to sit with it, sit with it, sit with it. And like, that's, that's, maybe you're right. Maybe it was the perfect, perfect time. Mm. So, so I'm going to leave you something else from, from, from the, my, the psychic lady I visited on a Thursday, uh, which, which will maybe help ease your um, transition, I guess, is I sat down there. She didn't even, first time I bet that she didn't introduce herself. She went, holy shit, you're in a lot of change at the moment. Yeah. Um, which is from, maybe it's this tagline, right? Who knows? Right. But, but, but what she, what she, I mean, I've implemented quite a few changes in my life and, and, and are struggling with certain friendships. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what she said to me, she says, or she said, I can see you struggling. Um, some friendships aren't meant to be there forever. She says the people that you are friends with now see you in your old identity and your old self. Yeah. Um, when you, when you, when you let go of those friends, she said, I'm not saying seeing them, you know, when you let go of those certain relationships, when you need new people, you don't have to explain your identity. They see you for you. Who you are now. And that's, what yeah, that's beautiful. 
Mm. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that like, I've always been a peacemaker. Um, and I have definitely gotten to a place in my life. Like, uh, the quote is sometimes you need to burn bridges to keep yourself from crossing them again. Mm. And like, you don't have to burn, you don't have to make the big show. I, I quite prefer the opposite, but letting go of those people. Yeah. New people will see you and like, you want to surround yourself with the right people. And then you don't have to validate, oh, this is who I am or this is, you know, but that's how I used to be. And that's cool, right? That was a phase. But as everything in life, everything comes to an end, right? Yeah. I mean, it's really, you think about like, I would say our friendship, um, the types of friendship, like I know that I could call you and it wouldn't matter if I'm like, dude, I just got back from Tijuana. I went to a donkey show and things got crazy with a bunch of midgets in a wrestling ring with cream corn. Or if I'm like, Hey, this shit's falling apart and a friend died and I don't know what to do. None of those would come with judgment. It would all come with acceptance. Mm. I see you're in a lot of pain. How can I support you? Like it's just, and the people that respond that way, those are the people that you want in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's pivot to, cause I know you got, um, I think you and I could speak for like 24 hours. Yeah, probably so. I'd have to go get, get dinner started in just a minute. Now. Yeah, yeah. So just, just two more two more topics on the suicide thing that I'd love to talk about. The take your pills. Uh, Netflix doco, when every time I go to the US, I normally room with people and, you know, we spend too much time in hotel rooms drinking fluids. Um, and, and I always get shocked at the amount of prescription drugs that are in North America and in my friends, you know, bathrooms. Whereas for me, maybe it's a Panadol for, because of too much booze. Um, yeah. Or maybe Omegas for, you know, for inflammation, but that's from an athletic perspective. That's kind of as, as far as I go. Mm-hmm. How much is prescription drugs affecting suicide rates? Um, I'm not a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of diet and nutrition and all that stuff, which is my next question. What, what's your take on the, the prescribed first, um, from my, once again, my perception of the prescribed mm-hmm. first, mentality in North America and how that affects uh, mental health? So my take on it's going to be a little non-traditional, I think. Um, The way that I look at prescription drugs is that if, if all you're doing is medication, then you're not really dealing with what you're trying to medicate. Um, For me, uh, I take medication every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's part of me also being in therapy or, you know, before that it was part of me also working on self-development and growth and building my coping skills. And, you know, America has this really, really tortured, um, relationship with mental health that like, it's, I mean, like, my God, there have even been studies that have gone back to the Marlboro man and the rough frontier bullshit, you know, manifest destiny crap and all this stuff. And like we med shame at the same time we overprescribe. It's mm. super weird. So what you get is you get this effect of people taking secret drugs because they don't want to share. Um, and people that will do, will take their medication, but not do the work around it as well. Yeah. And so I think that there's a lot in the United States, especially around like, Jesus, fuck the opioid stuff and all of that. Like that's kind of its own bear entirely because that's just, that was just greed and people pushing and like, Towns of 5,000 people having, you know, a million pills in the, in the county. I mean, just banana pants stuff. So that's taking pharma out of it, but really looking at it from a treatment perspective. Prescriptions are tools. You're going to use some tools your entire life. 
you're going to use some tools short. But if I had high blood pressure and I took three pills a day to keep my blood pressure in a place where I didn't have a stroke, I didn't die, and I was okay, nobody in the entire country would look at me like weird. But if I take one pill a day to keep myself from feeling suicidal mm. or to keep myself from having uh, depressive events where I can't get out of bed for three weeks, I'm a pill popper. And so what you have is you have this weird dissonance where people will want to get help and look at the medicine as the cure-all as opposed to part of the treatment. And so, you know, I, I, I think, and I am somebody who has ADHD like squirrel, I mean like unbelievable. I went 32 years, no, 34 years of my life without medication. I'm convinced I'm ADHD as well. I've got to be. <laughs> and, and like, and, and the thing was is that I was always told you're so smart, yeah. you can do all these things. But for me, the daily struggle, uh, my experience was so different than everybody else that being told I was normal and smart and could do this stuff made me feel terrible because I I couldn't. Mm. I still remember when I started medication for ADHD, and it, and like, it was like. <sighs> everything calmed like you know there's a there's a reddit post i'll see if i can find it and send it where this guy describes add and it was like the closest i could possibly imagine to what my experience is but it's like you have a tv and for those of you who are too young we used to have these things called cable boxes and on top of the cable boxes we had like remotes and we would push the button and ADHD is like every single show on Netflix streaming at the same time on half the screen, every single show streaming at the same time from Hulu on one, and then random sports and HBO all at once. Your brain has, for me, my brain has no ability to prioritize. So I have the ability, rarely, to hyper-focus and drill in on one thing, and then I literally won't like hear people talking in my ear. But the ability to be functional day to day and to be able to deal with those things was something that was so far beyond me. Like depression referred, uh, ADHD, depression referred by ADHD is really common and anxiety because without treatment and help, you feel powerless. Mm. You feel like you can't do anything because you're told your talent is great, uh, you're gifted, whatever, but you can't seem to get over the hump of like some basic shit. And so for me, my medication for ADHD was a lifesaver. And it wasn't just, it let me do stuff better. Uh, my depression lessened. My anxiety went away almost entirely. Um, and like, I'll, get, I'll give this as the last anecdote because I'm not the only person who said this, but I'll, I'll give this as something that like will help. For me, there are times when I can't sleep and I will take my ADD medicine to stop my fucking brain. Mm. Because without it, my brain can't prioritize and like I can sit in a room at night and I can hear the neighbor walking across the street, the light flickering, the palm trees blowing. I think I just heard my kids upstairs. Was that a skunk outside? Why is the dog snoring? And it will, <laughs> I will go four or five hours yeah. with no rest and no ability to focus my brain and just say, dude, just shut the fuck out. Just have you, have you looked into meditation? Oh yeah. I meditate. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, 
I told you I'm physically fit, mm. uh, eating. I was actually really proud of this. I'll share this. I went to a new chiropractor. Um, I took a tumble on a skateboard and like tweaked something in my back and I went in and like, this was after the hundred gym visits in, um, uh, the be- end of last year, beginning of this year, and then doing the, uh, high intensity training for three months during COVID. And he goes, normally we do like a, you know, a, a city, more or less a city, you know, just a regular city uh, evaluation. Like, but you're in enough shape that I, I think we're going to do the the athlete the eval. Holy God, did I feel good! And like that was just, I like, I mean, even just saying like goosebumps, like, yeah. But I know when I'm feeling bad, I need to work out. And like the other piece, I always give my friends is like, when you're really down, when you're really dark, and you don't want to do shit, that's when you have to do the things that you know will make you feel better, even if they don't. Yeah, because they will eventually. So like, what, like I still remember, like I had just one of the worst fucking days. The vortex, the kids, work, all this stuff, and like I always try and make sure I do three times a week minimum with my my high intensity training. I came downstairs from just a horrible night with my kids trying to get them to bed, and they were just wired and couldn't do it. They were upset and all this stuff. Eight thirty at night, I started doing it, and it was painful. And like I didn't want to do it, and I fought myself all the way through it. I slept that night for the first time in like a week, yeah. but like, even though I didn't want to do it, I still had to do it. So it's yeah, part of it. It's my meds, it's my regimen, it's what I eat. It's what I put in my body. Like, yeah. So, so let's, I mean, the last point, cause I know on the topic of food, right? You, you've got to go cook for your kids at some stage. Um, how important is nutrition? Now it's something that I'm entirely fascinated by. Um, in terms of good nutrition, um, as I said to you before, when we were getting this, I was just reading Grain Brain, which I've mentioned a few podcasts about how you know the wheat's basically affecting mental health. Um, so is the uh, so I mean, we're all pretty much lactose intolerant. I've actually just putting it out there. I've started. There's a, a program called WildFit. It's a 90 day program in terms of actually created by a Slashman guy. Today's day one for me, which I'm going to do as as a human guinea pig for myself, just to just to um, you know, see, see ways, different, different ways and to be as more optimal as possible as I ease towards yep. 50. <laughs> to be, how, 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 sorry, what I was going to say when I was all that mumbling, I knew there was a point in there, but on the Wildford thing the guy, his, his, if you look at a doctor, a psychologist, how long did you study for? Six years. You know, specialist, how long did you study for? Nine years. How long did you spend focusing on food? Yeah. Zero. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and his thing is like, well, doctors obviously want to help, right? They studied for eight years or 10 years. They've got like hundreds of thousand dollars of debt to help people. They don't want to not help people, yeah. but they're not educated in terms of the academic system at the moment in terms of what goes in your body is what's going to affect everything, yeah. which is the root cause. So from a, from a mental health suicide prevention, what research has been done on nutrition and how important is it? And, you know, because... For me, once again, part of the essential aid, it's one of, you know, health and nutrition is one of the penalty calls. Everyone's like, this is a fucking divorce course. What does it matter about food? I'm like, it's so, so important. Yeah. Um, so I can send you some of the research on it. At a really high level, what you put in your body is how you feel. I mean, like at a core level, it's, it's, it's gas in the car, it's your oil, it's all your fluids, it's everything. And like, you know, there's, um, there's a lot to indicate that a good diet helps. I mean, just flat, like a good diet good vegetables, lower carbs, uh, moderate protein, um, all of those things help. Uh, antioxidants, berries, fresh is better than processed, all that stuff. Um, and I, I, I ascribe to that altogether. I think that where we've gotten in trouble as a, as a, as a society 
is that we moralized uh, nutrition. Mm. And so like you go to your doctor, your doctor's like, you need to be on this diet to live. Okay. Yeah, I do. But I also need to live. And I think that what you see is that this, by moralizing diet into something that's shamed, um, you get yo-yos. People will do this diet and slam off it. Do this diet and slam off it. And so what I tell my friends who are going through things similar to us and what I would you know, like to humbly suggest to your listeners is that pick something that works and pick something that you can be mostly consistent on. You don't have to be perfect. Again, don't moralize the behavior. Look, I'll be perfectly honest. I have a bag of Chili Verde Doritos in my pantry that I can't wait to demolish. I also spent three hours this morning making gluten-free sourdough and homemade beef jerky and some soup for dinner. Yeah. And, you know, for breakfast, I had a slice of pizza. And so, like, that's a little more than what's normal. But, like, it's one of those things that, like, again, I come back to this balance thing. If all you're eating is junk food, you're going to feel like ass. You're going to feel slow. You're going to feel cognitively impaired. You're going to eat more because like, you know, if you, if you ever want to blow your mind, go read about the, uh, the satiation point, I think is what it's called. And it's how we engineer food to be the perfect amount of salt, the perfect amount of sweet without triggering our body's reaction that I'm full. And you know where Which they get that? You, you know can where they get Doritos. Huh? You know where they get that ratio from, from the perfect fat carb protein level? Where? Breast milk. When all you're trying to do is grow. Mm. Wow, I did not know that. They they get it from that, and that's why it's addictive because that's that's what we designed to crave. That's that's the perfect, and especially the fast food. That's a it's a perfect perfect cocktail to make it as addictive as possible. Yeah, and that and that's that's really it. And so, like you know, for me, the easiest way for me to stick to what I do is. I won't moralize the fact that I'm going to go eat those chili verde Doritos and they're going to be fucking incredible, but I didn't buy the jumbo family pack. I bought one little bag. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to make sure that like, it's a day that I work out. Like for my kids during COVID, they want a dessert, which they always do because they're kids. Three requirements. You got to work out twice, go outside. We to, we're going to go ride bikes. We're going yeah. to do scooters. We're going to do something twice. If you don't do that, it's not even eligible. And that teaches the behavior that we want to work for fun food versus fuel food. Um, and the other one is that they have to eat their dinner, not what was programmed into us in the 70s and 80s, which you have to clear your plate. There's a starving kid in another country that fucked up a bunch of generations because we are literally we trained our kids yeah. to ignore their bodies. Yeah. So balance is what I would say is like there are times where nothing is going to make me feel as good as a tremendous pile of pad thai noodles but I don't eat it all the time. Yeah. Like, you know, so it's, it's one of those things where it's like in all things balance and, and give yourself, give yourself some grace. You're going through a whole hell of a lot right now. Even if you're listening to this two years from now, I promise give yourself some grace, find some balance in the food because you'll feel a whole lot better and drink some water for fuck's sake. It's like the most important thing you can do. Drink some water, lots of it every day. Yeah, we are. I mean, I, I my, my kids always dad, I'm stuck. Cause you know, COVID kids are always freaking hungry, right? Starving, starving have a glass of water because it's uh, generally we just dehydrate it. So, you know, you, if you, if you're starving, you have a glass of water, you're like, Oh, okay. That, that went away pretty quickly. I have a two to one goal with my kids. Uh, you can have an unhealthy snack, 
but you got to have a piece of fruit and a vegetable before yeah. or a health or a piece of cheese or like really like the one that really got it for me was yogurt uh, and, and a small apple. And like they got mad the first couple of times. And then after that, Clint, they just started going getting an apple and yogurt. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. You are a and they come to me and say, hey, I'm still hungry. Then I know they're actually hungry. Yeah. Not just I'm bored. <laughs> COVID thing. Right, my friend, let's wrap up. So um, final closing thought from you, and then I'm going to put a challenge to you uh, as, 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 we, as we close it up, which I've thought of during this podcast. So any, any bits of advice? Firstly, I mean, for me, thank you so much for your time. I know, I, I know it's, it's been a long time coming. We've been email ping-ponging you a bit, but thank you so much for your time. It's, it's amazing to see you in such a good space. You are almost half the man you were physically when I saw you last. Um, so congrats on that transformation. You look awesome and, and keep doing what you're doing, man. It's, it's really, it's, it's, I mean, I think we, we're on the same mission. We just want to help people and impact lives. So, so thank you for that. Um, for you, any closing thoughts before I lay down your final challenge? Uh, two things. One, um, just wanted to say thank you again for sharing your experience and what you went through. That's, that's hard stuff. And I recognize this is the first time you shared that. And that's so lots of love and support, man. That's, that's big to share. Um, the other one is, is what I just said, which is give, give, give yourself some grace. Like we are going through, um, unimaginable times right now. And like the concept of giving grace is we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to always do things right, but we don't need to blame ourselves or shame ourselves for stuff. Sometimes we can just accept that something happened and then we can move forward and forgive ourselves and not beat ourselves up over it because beating ourselves up for anything it doesn't help us. It doesn't help us achieve the goal we were trying to make. And it certainly doesn't help us move forward in our, our personal development. So my last word would be give, give yourself some grace. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So the challenge is this is something else you probably don't know is when the Jamie Oswald experience was staying with me here at the beach house. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he was hopping on about, Oh, you're th- oh, part of my one, another, another one of the modules for me and my purpose is finding your why, finding your passion. Right. Um, and he said, well, what happens if I don't know what it is? And we got onto the topic of stand-up comedy. So yes, I, I've seen him. I saw his recordings. Yes. So I, I laid the gauntlet down and he, by the time he had got home back to St. Louis, I had bought, went onto Amazon and I bought a comedy book for him, how to structure a stand-up. Uh-huh. Waiting for him as he arrived. And I said, I'm coming. I was going over for the Beale Street Music Festival. And I said, you are going to do stand-up. So the gauntlet goes like this, my friend. Uh, when doors open again and I'm allowed to get into the land of the free, I will be flying to San Diego uh, to see you in your first stand-up. Deal? Deal. Okay. So you I need got, that book too. <laughs> yeah? Sorry? I need, I, need, I need to know what book that is. Uh, I, I'll, I'll send you the link through Amazon for, from Jamie. Awesome. But, um, but basically at the time he had about 10 pages of content and he threw it away and started again. So. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I've been doing a lot of writing, so I, I've got some content I'll probably throw away too, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited. But that's a pack from me to you. I will be in San Diego, and we'll hang out, and I look forward to seeing you doing that stand-up. All right, I'm going to come join you there. I'm going to come there, and I'm going to come see you. Well, bring, the, the water's warm. We bring your kids, live on the beach, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a very, very cool place to hang out. I, I can't wait. Thanks, my friend. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.